We're in the book of Acts chapter number 4. Acts chapter 4. The message this morning is something that as I prepared for it, in fact I shared this with my wife this morning, my problem with the message today is not coming up with enough to say, but rather so many things that are on my heart that I'd like to say, but I know that time would not permit to say everything that's in my heart, so really the hard part in my studying and preparing for the sermon today was figuring out what to leave off and uh, what to cover, and so uh, I did the best way I know how, and I just figured I'll stick with the things that are directly in the text and let the Word of God speak for itself. Acts chapter number 44, verse number 32. We're actually going to read down through chapter 5, and uh, I originally planned on going to verse 25, but for sake of time, we'll end at chapter 5, verse number 16. The Bible says in Acts 4, verse 32, "...and the multitude of them that believed were of one heart and of one soul. Neither said any of them that aught of the things which he possessed was his own." But they had all things common, and with great power gave the apostles witness of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. Neither was there any among them that lacked, for as many as were possessors of lands or houses, sold them and brought the prices of the things that were sold, laid them down at the apostles' feet, and distribution was made unto every man according as he had need. And Joseph, who by the apostles was surnamed Barnabas, which is being interpreted the son of consolation, a Levite and of the country of Cyprus, having land, sold it and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. Chapter 5, verse 1 says, But a certain man named Ananias with Sapphira his wife sold a possession and kept back part of the price, his wife also being privy to it, and brought a certain part and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why hath Satan filled thine heart to lie to the Holy Ghost and to keep back part of the price of the land? Whilst it remained, was it not thine own? And after it was sold, was it not in thine own power? Why hast thou conceived this thing in thine heart? Thou hast not lied unto men, but unto God." And Ananias, hearing these words, fell down and gave up the ghost. Great fear came on all them that heard these things. If you're not familiar with that phrase, he gave up the ghost, it means he dropped dead. Right then, right there. Verse 6, And the young men arose, wound him up, and carried him out, and buried him. And it was about the space of three hours after when his wife, not knowing what was done, came in. That's kind of an interesting culture, wouldn't you agree? How'd you like to miss the Sunday morning service and show up Sunday night and find out that your husband's dead and they already buried him? Maybe you never thought about that. I just found that kind of interesting. So she shows up about three hours after when his wife, not knowing what was done, came in. Verse 8, and Peter answered her, Tell me whether ye sold the land for so much. And she said, Yea, for so much. Yep, that's right. It was that amount. Then Peter said unto her, How is it that ye have agreed together to tempt the Spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of them which have buried thy husband are at the door and shall carry thee out. Then fell she down straightway at his feet and yielded up the ghost. I guess she didn't have time to question, how dare you bury my husband without me showing up? I guess maybe the Holy Spirit knew what was going to happen, right? And so they, um, she fell down straightway, verse 10, at his feet, yielded up the ghost, and the young men came in and found her dead, and carrying her forth, buried her by her husband. And great fear came upon all the church, and upon as many as heard these things. By the hands of the apostles were many signs and wonders wrought among the people. They were all with one accord in Solomon's porch. And the rest durst no man join himself to them, but the people magnified them. And believers were the more added to the Lord, multitudes both of men and women, insomuch that they brought forth the sick into the streets 
and laid them on beds and couches that at the least the shadow of Peter passing by might overshadow some of them. There came also a multitude out of the cities round about unto Jerusalem, bringing sick folks, them that were vexed with unclean spirits, and they were healed every one. Notice it doesn't say just the ones that had the faith, but it says every one of them were healed. I'm going to skip reading verses 17 through 25, but I'll explain briefly that what happens is that the apostles who were preaching the resurrection of Jesus Christ, that the Jewish, the Jewish religious crowd, the powers that be, cast them into prison. And uh, the angel of the Lord shows up and delivers them from the prison. The locks just magically, they are unlocked. They, they leave the prison. And the next thing you know, you find the apostles out on the street doing what they were already doing, preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. They did it anyways. And I appreciate that fact that here were some men that loved the Lord Jesus so much and cared about souls that they weren't trying to win a popularity contest. They were simply trying to serve the Lord. And they had the backbone and they had the compassion to do it regardless of all the oppression and all of the circumstances and obstacles. I want to preach to you this morning on the subject of the right kind of church. Would you bow your heads with me and let's ask the Lord's blessings upon the message. Father, thank you for the Word of God. Thank you for these faithful men of God who preached with boldness. Uh, thank you for the presence of God. Lord, I realize that this was the time of the apostles. Uh, things are somewhat different today, but Lord, you're the same God. And I know, Lord, that you want to miraculously change our lives and heal our souls and help us with our troubles and above all, I know that you want to forgive us of all of our sins. And I pray now that you would bless us today, speak to our hearts, lead us and guide us, have your will and way. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. The right kind of church. Notice I didn't say the perfect church. I heard someone say a long time ago, if you find the perfect church, don't join it. You'll just mess it up. Now, the subject of church today is kind of a mystery, partly because of what it has morphed into. And this, this is the first church. And so while this is a local church, this is also the universal church. This is all the church that exists. They're all here in one location. So you don't have the existence of a church on every corner. You have no denominationalism going on here. You just have simply the apostles. And at this point, there hasn't even really been any doctrinal disputes or problems. You have a unified church, but certainly you have a church that is the right kind of church. Today, church is a mystery. Part of it, because we are ignorant of its history. We don't really understand where the church came from. The average person, when you talk about church, they just think about some building that's got a steeple and it's a place where different religions meet. And it can mean, you, you have to talk about church to one person and it can mean something totally different to than the other person that you talk about church. We have so many prejudices we have so many impressions, so many thoughts, and so many beliefs, and everything in between that the church, or at least the right kind of church, is somewhat of a mystery. I'd like to say that, just kind of by the way, that I'm no expert. I think about what David said in Psalm 131 in verse number 1. He said to the Lord, he said, my heart is not haughty. He said, I'm not proud. And he said, Lord, I have not exercised myself in matters that are too high for me. I will say this, I'm no expert, but I do have a passion for church. I do have an interest in the church. I've basically surrendered my life to the Lord, and He has called me to be a pastor, a shepherd of the sheep. And so, yes, the right kind of church is a very important thing in my heart, but I still 
have to say I'm no expert. There are a lot of things that I just find myself scratching my head and confused and not knowing, is that the Lord's blessings or is that just man-made results? And so I don't try to exercise myself in matters too high for me. I try to focus on the things that I have some control and some say-so over. And while every single one of us has a varying opinion of what a church ought to be, and some are good opinions, some are misguided opinions, but the bottom line is the Word of God is really the only thing that matters. In today's culture, we have a literal buffet of churches to choose from. This is not the way that Christ intended the church to be. But here we are. I mean, you talk about schisms and divisions and denominations and groups and stripes and camps and the, you know, flavors. The, the list is just endless. And well, I like this and I like that. And we have an endless buffet of churches to choose from. It's not the way it was supposed to be. But here we are. I don't think there's anything that we can do about it. When's the last time that you heard about a church amalgamation? If you don't know what I mean by that, I mean, we, we hear of church splits. If a church splits, you're going to hear about that because bad news travels quickly. When's the last time that you heard about four like-minded church in the same block <laughs> saying, you know what, this is crazy. We all basically believe the same thing. Why don't we just get together and join forces and make a difference in our community for Jesus Christ? That very concept would just strike all kinds of emotions in the heart of people who, well, this is my church. My family's been here and, you know, it's just not going to happen. The church is in a mess. But I don't know what to do about it. I don't know that there's anything that can be done about it, humanly speaking. But I will say this. That doesn't mean that we can't go to the Word of God and find out from God what the right kind of church should look like. Maybe in this literal buffet of churches to choose from, maybe we need to tear up our shopping list and replace it with a to-do list. Most believers at some point have been content, discontent with their church. At some point in your life, you're going to find yourself discontent. The fault could be with us. The fault could be with the pastor. The fault could be with the people. The fault could be with the culture and generation in which we live, or maybe a conglomerate mixture of all of the above. I don't know. I don't always know my own heart, do you? How can I judge everybody else's heart when I have a hard time figuring myself out? Churches are sub the subject of judgment every single Sunday. When we attend a church, we judge the facility. We judge the singing. We judge the nursery. We judge the program. And yes, we judge the preacher. It just goes with the territory. It's just the way that things are. And in many ways, we need to judge what's going on in a church. I think that uh, probably one of the worst things that people do, and it is extremely common, is that people attend a church because, well, I like the, I like the preacher. He's just got such a wonderful personality and he never says anything that ruffles my feathers. He makes me feel so wonderful about me. Or maybe, maybe he's rough and gruff, but kind of like John the Baptist. He rips my face out off, but I like the way that he does it. He, he, he makes me laugh and the pro, I don't know. I mean, all I know is that churches are judged every single Sunday, but the only judge that counts is the one to whom the church belongs. Wouldn't you say amen to that? Acts chapter number 20, verse 28, 
Paul says to, as he's getting ready to leave Ephesus, he says, Take heed, therefore, unto yourselves and to all the flock over the which the Holy Ghost hath made you overseers to feed the church of God, which he hath purchased with his own blood. Hey, if you've ever questioned the deity of Jesus Christ, that verse right there nails it. It's the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. Jesus, God the Son, shed his blood on Calvary's cross. He purchased the church, so ultimately this is his church. And the judgment of any church, when all is said and done, it's only going to matter what he has to say about the church. The body of Christ, and it is, the church is the body of Christ, shares some characteristics with the human body. It can be extremely resilient and extremely fragile all at the same time. It's amazing the things that one time the human body can endure and then some little old thing happen and you're talking hospice. The human body, the, 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 the body of Christ, very resilient, very fragile all at the same time. Let's talk now for the rest of our time this morning on some characteristics of the right kind of church. Before I give you point number one, I want to say this. Please get this. A large church is not always a healthy church. And a healthy church is not always a small church. Sometimes we focus, and not sometimes, but very often we focus too much on the amount of people that are sitting in a church service. And really, that's not always a good gauge. It can be if the people that are sitting in the church service are sitting in the church service for the right reason and from the right heart. Jesus said, where two or three are gathered together in my name, there will I be in the midst of them. I am certain that there are churches in America today that literally have thousands in attendance as we speak, that it might be hard-pressed to find two or three among the thousands that are actually gathered together in the name of Jesus Christ for the purpose of Jesus Christ and gathered together because of a heart for God rather than for some type of a religious or social selfish motive and reason. And so number one, I'd like to say from the Word of God that the right kind of church is a unif- is a church that is unified and has a justified purpose. Look with me at verse 32 of chapter 4 once again. It says, The multitude of them that believed were of one heart and of one soul. Then all of their possessions and all of their standard of living, they weren't trying to live the American dream. At this time, it would have been the Israeli dream, I guess. They weren't trying to impress with their social or economic status. They were willing to say, listen, it doesn't matter how much we have. We are here for a unified and justified purpose. Let me explain that. You can have a unified purpose But if it's not a justified, if you can't justify the reason for your purpose from the Word of God, then that unity is not only going to be short-lived, but it's not going to produce the kind of fruit that is supposed to be produced in a local church. Philippians chapter 1 and verse number 27, Paul says, Only let your conversation be as it becometh the gospel of Christ. You know, if you're a church member, you're part of Christ's church. I I think about this often, and I I don't know that I've ever said this from the pulpit. If I did, then I wasn't thinking straight, and I maybe didn't mean it the way that it came across. But listen, if you are a member of this church, when you go outside of these four walls, you're not representing Temple Baptist Church. If you're truly part of a Bible-believing church that is Christ's church, then when we leave this place, we're representing Jesus Christ. And so sometimes we get focused on all these 
rules and standards and convictions and all of these things when, listen, if the rules and convictions and standards are all according to the principles of this book, then when we leave these four walls, then those rules and principles and standards should be unchanged, whether somebody's looking at me or somebody's not. I'm amazed at how many people who live one way in private and then they act a totally different way around the preacher. Kind of sounds like Ananias and Sapphira. (laughs) That's scary. That's scary. A unified and justified purpose is the right kind of church. Do you know that a unified and justified purpose will get a church through tough times? When a church becomes proud or social, it changes. I have, um, I've done a lot of weddings in my time in ministry. Haven't done any for uh, a number of years, but maybe one of these days we're going to see some of these young people that are being trained to live the Christian life, maybe we're going to see some good Christian weddings in the future, huh? Wouldn't that be exciting? But I've been a part of a lot of weddings. And how often have I seen the bride who attracts her husband with her sweetness and kindness and servant's heart, and you put that fancy dress on, and she becomes the center of attention and... Poof, out pops Bridezilla. You ever notice that? I mean, why is that? Why is that? It's because all of a sudden now, there's this mentality that, hey, look at me. You know, I, I haven't eaten for three months so that I can be skinny for this day. By the way, men, beware. <laughs> it's not permanent. No, I'm just messing with it. I've been around the block a time or two here. I've seen things. But <laughs> well, what is it? You know, you put on a wedding dress and the thing that sweetness is gone and not self-centeredness. Do you know that the church, the bride of Christ, which by the way, we are the bride of Christ, but the wedding's still in the future. We're, we're, we haven't reached that glory stage where it's, hey, look at me, I'm getting ready to marry my bridegroom. We're still, I guess this is the engagement process, if you want to call it that. And there's a lot of doctrinal things, and uh, I'm not going to go into all of that. But I will say this, that weddings, just on a practical note, weddings are not fantasy. They are God-honoring public commitments. Why do we lose sight of that? And all of a sudden, we start thinking of this self-glory fantasy life like we want everything to be a production and a performance because this is our moment of glory. Listen, the bride of Christ is the same way. When God blesses and good things happen and the crowd grows and the offerings are big and we have need of nothing, then all of a sudden we start looking in the mirror. Instead of being the bride of Christ that says to our bridegroom, hello honey, what can I do for you? What can I do to serve you? Can I wash your feet? Can I fix you a meal? You've got something you'd like to send me to do, but now all of a sudden we start looking in the mirror and we start primping and we become extremely social we start showing up at the house of God because we we don't want anybody to think that we're not a good church member. We worry about what people think of us or that they won't think of us. And so now all of a sudden, the, what, what God did in our heart that brought us to the church to begin with, we lose that heart and we just start going through the motions spiritually, but we start or we start taking all of our activities and all of our energy and we start focusing into the social aspect. I enjoy the social aspect of church. I'm looking at many, many people here as I stand before you and preach the Word of God. I'm looking at many people that you are as dear to me as my own flesh and blood. 
And I enjoy the camaraderie. I enjoy the unified purpose and the justified purpose. I enjoy the fellowship and I enjoy the friendship. But that's not why we're here, brothers and sisters. We are here because this is God's church and we are here to grow spiritually. We're here so that our lives will be changed to be more like our Savior tomorrow than we are today. When we lose that, I mean, we can be growing. Hey, social organizations, if we do it well enough, then we can gain more bodies. But a church can be big and not be healthy. And when I say healthy, I'm talking about the spiritual aspect. By the way, by the way, you can have a spiritual pastor behind the pulpit, and you can have good standards in your statement of faith, and you can have everything right going on here at the platform, but if the people are living carnal, worldly lives, you know what you got? You got a carnal, worldly church. Because the church is not an organization, it's an organism. It's a body, and it is made up of the people. And how you live your life in private affects what you bring to the corporate body of Christ. It grieves the Holy Spirit of God, and it hinders the work of God. If you care anything about the work of God, if you're not living right, if you're not walking right, You've got things in your life that you know down deep that the Word of God teaches against. You ought to get on your knees and say, God, I need to get this thing right. I need to get it right from me. I need to get it right from my family. I need to get it right from my church family. But most importantly, I need to get it right from my Savior, Jesus Christ, the One who loves me and died for me. Number two, the right kind of church is... Faithful and bold in preaching and teaching the Word of God. Look at verse number 33. It says, With great power gave the apostles witness of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. With great power. They are preaching the Word of God with boldness. A good church is in the business of helping people. And the most important primary need that people have today is their spiritual needs and the condition of their souls. Listen, there are so many needs today. Physical, financial, relational, you name it. The, the needs over, I mean, we cannot, there's no church that can meet everybody's needs. The resources are limited, but I'll tell you what area that we have unlimited resources in, and that is the soul business. We have the gospel of Jesus Christ. We have the truth of the Word of God. The things that will truly change a person's life. And we're talking about a change that is lasting. I got right with God over 30 years ago. And when I surrendered my heart to the Lord, let me tell you something. The Lord did some changes. He did some, He, he did some healing in this soul and spirit of mine. He changed my heart. And I went from a young man that endured church to a man who loved church. I used to, I used to just couldn't wait till the preaching was over. Maybe some of you are like that this morning. I used to couldn't wait till it was over. And, and, and I always thought that it was just the preacher. Then I got right with the Lord and it was the same preacher the next week that preached the week before. And instead of being bored, I was interested. The problem wasn't the preacher. The problem was my heart. I didn't care. I didn't really, I didn't crave or hunger for the Word of God. But when I got hungry for it, I found that just like the proverb says, the full soul loatheth the honeycomb, but to the hungry soul, every bitter thing is sweet. I hope I'm not bringing you bitter things this morning. I hope that the preaching always isn't always bland and dull and boring. I, I don't want to be that way, but there's some ways I can't be anybody but what I'm not. But I do know this. If I give you the truth of the Word of God, if your soul is hungry, you're going to enjoy the meal. It may not be the best meal you've ever eaten, but you're going to say, well, that was a good meal. I'm glad I went to church. Helping people requires both care and competency. 
I had this conversation with a doctor just a, just recently. I said, you know what, doc, you're in the business of helping people. I'm in the business of helping people. You go about it a different way, but there are some similarities that we have to deal with. I, I, I know that there are doctors out there that don't know what they're doing. No, no say amen to that. I, I, I hear it all the time. And sometimes they don't know what they're doing. Sometimes they get a bum rap because it's just not an exact science. Sometimes they're doing the best that they can. Sometimes they think, well, this may be your problem, but if I go ahead and treat it and it's not your problem, I'm doing more harm than good. So they wait. So then they wait and then you get sick and it's like, well, the doctor didn't do this, this other doctor. Sometimes they get a bum rap. And if you're in the business of helping people, You're sticking your neck in a noose day in and day out, and you're going to be judged. And so a doctor has to be competent, but they also have to genuinely care about people. Because if you don't genuinely care, your competency will never be effective. Now, if you genuinely care, but you don't know what you're doing, you're not going to be helping either. So as Christians, a church needs to be competent, but also needs to be genuinely caring. By the way, we need to remember that the church's primary purpose is to please Christ. As a preacher, I can honestly say from the bottom of my heart, I hope that every single one of you that under that are under the sound of my voice, I hope and I pray. In fact, I spend time up here behind this pulpit every Saturday evening. I put my hands on this pulpit and I ask the Lord, please help me, God, to help the people. Please help me to be faithful to the Word of God. Help me to preach with boldness, but God, help me to have compassion in my soul. Help me to truly care. I don't want to just go through the motions. I don't want to try to please you or impress you. I want to help you. And I pray for that. But preachers must be men of God. That's not just a phrase that we use. A man of God is a descriptive term. It means that that man is a man of God and he is going to first and foremost represent God and the Word. And he's going to care about you but he's going to care so much about you that he might say some things that you don't necessarily want to hear. He may give you a prescription that you might need a little sugar to help the medicine go down. Some people need those big horse pills that are hard to swallow. Some people need that therapy that's like torture. Some people need that... Wow, I just thought it. I'm going to go ahead and say it. Some people need that spiritual colonoscopy. That is not in my notes. It just just was there. But you think about it, that's true. A lot of churches, the body of Christ probably needs that. I don't know. Let's move on. I'm embarrassing myself and my wife. But the church needs the power of God. Now, the power of God is an interesting, misunderstood, and neglected topic today. I don't fully understand the power of God. I don't know why that sometimes I feel like that I've spent time with God and I'm prepared and I'm prayed up and I preach and it just seems like the heavens are brass. Nothing's going on. It's like, uh, wow, let's just get, get this over with and go home and eat something. And other times that you just show up and you just you know you you think that nothing's going on and then you find out that God saved somebody or that God helped somebody or God I can't understand the power of God and I know that in today's ministry this kind of power of God that was demonstrated by the apostles this is a different day and age we have to kind of look at things a little bit different but I know that there were men of God like Jeremiah who preached and they had zero results, no converts. You know what the results of their power of God was? 
Everybody hated him. He was rejected. He got thrown in the dungeon. And you know what that was? That was the power of God. I know one thing. I would rather preach the truth of the Word of God and make people mad than for people to just not even care, not one bit. So, the right kind of church has faithful and bold preaching and teaching. The pastors, the teachers are bringing faithfully the Word of God, preaching and teaching the whole counsel of God, and they're doing it from a heart that cares. A pastor needs to know his flock. He needs to know the people. And listen, I know as I look out upon this congregation, every single one of you are at a different level of your spiritual growth. Every one of you are in a different circumstance in life. I know that every message cannot be the end-all, be-all. You preach one message that one person over here needs, and it's just what they needed. It was just harsh enough to get their attention. And that same truth and the harshness of it might be taking somebody over here and it's just opening up a wound and they're hurting. I can't explain to you what God does with the preaching of the Word of God, but I do know this, that if we sit and we listen and we open up our heart and receive the Word of God and realize that this is not the Word of the preacher, but this is the truth of the Word of God, it will effectually work in us that believe. First Thessalonians makes that crystal clear. Moving right along for sake of time. Number three, the right kind of church is characterized by grace, not criticism. Look at the last part of verse 33. It says, and great grace was upon them all. Great grace. What exactly does that mean? We sing about amazing grace. We say that grace is God's unmerited favor. We can also say that grace is God doing for us what we cannot do for ourselves. But one thing I do know this is that when God is doing the working, humility is retained. I'm not what I ought to be. I wish that I was more like Christ today than I am. I do know that I'm definitely still a work in progress. But I do know this, that I'm not what I once was. If you would have known me 35 years ago, and then look at a man standing before a congregation and preaching, you'd just shake your head and say, boy, I didn't see that one coming. I'm, that's the truth. That's the honest truth. You're looking at the least likely candidate for ministry. But you know what? God did that. I think about the things that God has done in my life. You know, when God does it, and how many times have I tried to fix something in my life only to fail? And then try again. Well, I'm going to correct this. I'm going to change this. I got this bad habit. I can't seem to get any momentum. So I try and I fail and I try and I fail. And then I find out that, you know what? I can't do it on my own. God, would you please help me? I desperately need your help. And out of the blue, God shows up. And all of a sudden, there's victory. There's change. There's blessings. And when that happens, we can sit back and when other people haven't gotten victory in the same area, you know what? We can look at that person and instead of being critical, we can have grace and we can pray for them because we knew we know that we couldn't handle it ourselves. Why should we think that everybody else should? Our problem is that we think too much of ourselves and we think that the changes, whether it be faithfulness, whether it be tithing, whether it be witnessing, whether it be having standards, whether it be being a faithful church member, all of those things, when we start thinking that we did it on our own, now we start looking down at other people that aren't living up 
to our expectations of ourselves. That's proof that there's not great grace. You can have a church that's got great character and it can be just as critical as it is right. But when it's the grace of God doing the work, then that means that humility is retained. Galatians 3, verse number 3, Paul says, Are ye so foolish, having begun in the Spirit, are ye now made perfect by the flesh? I would to God that we would all remember that, that what God has done in our life, He has done it. When we feel that we had something to do with our spiritual progress, we easily become critical of others. And yet Paul says in 1 Corinthians 4, verse 7, he says, For who maketh thee to differ from another? And what hast thou that thou didst not receive? Now, if thou didst receive it, why dost thou glory as if thou hadst not received it? Sometimes we just need to remember where we came from and how it was God that got us where we are today. And then my last point, number four, the right kind of church has problems, but deals with problems. In chapter 5, verse 1 through 11, we'll not read it again for sake of time. But you know the story. You've got this momentum. You've got this positive peer pressure that's going on in the church. Everybody's excited about the gospel. Everybody's excited about the church. Everybody's excited about the possibility that Jesus is coming back soon. We've got to reach everybody that we can. Doesn't matter about my retirement fund. It doesn't matter about my grandchildren inheriting my land. We're just going to sell it all and we're going to take all of that money and we're going to give it to God's men so that the gospel will get out. And so, man, they are just sold out. But Ananias and Sapphira look around and start seeing all of this excitement. Now, don't you know that it would be exciting, just that momentum of everybody just giving it all for God? I mean, not holding anything back, not worrying about their self, just caring about the church and God. And this was this momentum, and it had created this positive peer pressure. And Ananias and Sapphira saw, hey, here is a way that we can get a little bit of glory and a little bit of recognition. And so they sold their land, and they came and they brought it to the apostles. They sold their land for $20,000. They kept back ten, and they came to the apostles and said, we sold this land for $10,000, and we're going to give it all to God. And Peter explains to them, look, you didn't have to do it to begin with. And by the way, the Lord never commanded or even insinuate. They, this was all free will, spontaneity from the heart. God never said, I wanted you to do it. It was totally free will. And Peter said, listen, it was yours to begin with. You didn't have to sell it. And when you did sell it, all you had to do was just come up and say, you know what, we sold this land for 20000 but we don't feel like we want to give all 20 we We're just going to give ten. And you know what? That would have been absolutely perfectly fine in the eyes of the apostles. It certainly would have been perfectly fine in the, the eyes of the Lord. But they wanted to appear. They wanted to be in the in crowd. They weren't willing to have the same zeal and enthusiasm, but they wanted the same glory. This church here had momentum. Momentum can be dangerous. You don't want to just get swept up with the momentum of an excited church. Uh, it seems like all of these young preachers today, that's all they taught. Well, it's exciting. We had an exciting service and we have an exciting church and we're excited about this and we're excited about that. I, I, I'm okay with excitement, but we better have something a little bit more than just excitement. Momentum's great. Momentum can also be dangerous. You get swept up in that momentum and you may not be being motivated by the right source. Human nature wants to be part of a winning team. The sin of Ananias and Sapphira manifested a deadly motive and a leaven in the lump that God knew this has to be purged. Because what would have happened is that mentality would have spread. 
And in spite of the apostles, in spite of the right preaching, in spite of all of the right things that were going on, God knew that this mentality will spread and it will destroy the body from within. And that's why God dealt with it so harshly. Positive peer pressure produces rapid results. But it's the equivalent of anabolic steroids to the body. Hey, you can come in here and you can start seeing how everybody else looks and how they act and how they dress and all these things and say, you know what, I'm just going to conform and just do what everybody else is doing so that they'll accept me. Well, that's fine. That's some fast results. That all looks good on the outside, but you take the you take the bodybuilder who takes steroids, he's going to get some quick results and he's going to look strong and he's going to look big and he's going to look good very, very short term. But he's doing something in his body that's going to, going to render it unhealthy. You know, interesting point. Many of the people, many of the men that take anabolic steroids, they also end up sterile. You think about that, the church that is just growing on positive peer pressure, you don't have people being born again into the family of God. You just have people that are conforming socially. In this situation, we find that God deals directly with this problem. Peter discerns what the problem is. He confronts it, but it's God that takes care of it. Today, today it's different. Not always. I, I, I know of situations. I can think of a situation that happened years ago where a real man of God was treated badly publicly by another man over a doctrinal dispute. And publicly, that man shoved this man of God up on the platform. And he was not provoked to do that. It was just over a doctrinal disagreement. I don't even have time to begin to tell you of the disaster that happened to this man and his family. But I will say this, it's a tragedy that if you knew it, if you knew half of it, you would be moved to tears when you think about what happened. That does happen. But it's not the norm. Why is that? Well, I'll tell you why. Because today we know God's mind because we have this written in the Word of God. We know what God thinks of spiritual pretending. We have the principles that God has laid out for dealing with church problems. It's the body's immune system. And by the way, it works every time, but it takes time. There are no shortcuts. There's no magical miracle cures and drugs. The body of Christ has an immune system and it is simply following the principles that God teaches us. I'm running short of time here this morning and so for sake of... I'm going to take the time. 1 Corinthians 15. This is, this is that important. 1 Corinthians 15. Oh, excuse me. Um, 1 Corinthians 15. Five, I think that's a misprint. Does it say 15 up there? Yeah, that's wrong. 1 Corinthians chapter 5. That's my misprint, not, uh, not anyone else's. Not, not my missus who put together that PowerPoint for me. Secrets out. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse number 1, it says, It is reported commonly that there is fornication among you. And such fornication as is not so much as named among the Gentiles that one should have his father's wife. you got some serious sexual perversion going on in this church at Corinth. Paul says in verse 2, And ye are puffed up. What's puffed up? You're full of yourself, he says. You're glorying in your crowd and the size of your church. And you don't want to cause any problems. You don't want anybody to leave the church. It says, you're puffed up and have not rather mourned that he that hath done this deed might be taken away from among you. For I verily, as absent in body, but present in spirit, have judged already as though I were present concerning him that hath done this deed. 
In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, when ye are gathered together and my spirit with the power of our Lord Jesus Christ to deliver such an one unto Satan for the destruction of the flesh, that the spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Listen, this man who was committing this perversion, they weren't dealing with it. Paul says you're puffed up. You need to deal with this, but it's not to punish the man. It's so that the man will get it right. It was for his correction, primarily, I should say. And he says in verse 6, he says, Your glorying is not good. Know ye not that a little leaven leaveneth the whole lump? Listen, you're glorying because, well, we didn't lose any families. We didn't lose anybody. But you're letting this silent, invisible, slow-working leaven into the lump that's going to change the nature of this church. And Paul says in verse 7, Purge out therefore the old leaven, that ye may be a new lump, as ye are unleavened, for even Christ our Passover is sacrificed for us. Therefore let us keep the feast, not with old leaven, neither with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote unto you in an epistle, not to company with fornicators, yet not altogether with the fornicators of this world, or with the covetous, or extortioners, or with idolaters. For then must ye needs go out of the world. But now I have written unto you not to keep company if a man that is called a brother be a fornicator, or covetous, or an idolater, or a railer, or a drunkard, or an extortioner, with such an one know not to eat. Paul says, put them out of your fellowship. Don't fellowship with them. Don't keep those social friendships. You're not helping them by doing that. You're hurting them. Now, once again, we're living in a day and age where if you deal with someone biblically, they're probably not going to get it right. They're just going to go to the church down the road. And that's sad and that's unfortunate. But God didn't send us a memo and say, well, because your culture is a mess, then you can just skip what I said. I didn't get that memo, did you? And so he says in verse 12, For what have I to do to judge them that are without? Do not ye judge them that are within? But them that are without, God judgeth. Therefore put away from among yourselves that wicked person. God says that a a right kind of church is going to have problems. There's going to be Ananias and Sapphira. There's going to be, hopefully not a young man like this, but there's going to be some type of similarity, some type of sin problem. It's going to happen in every church, but it needs to be dealt with. God dealt with it first. He gives us the example, and now we know what God thinks about it, and so now we need to deal with it. Romans 16 and verse 17 says, Now I beseech you, brethren, mark them which cause divisions and offenses contrary to the doctrine which ye have learned, and avoid them. This is not to the preacher, by the way. God's not telling me that I need to get up in front of you and tell you who you need to mark. God's saying you need to do it. The people, the body. For they are they which such serve not our Lord Jesus Christ, but their own belly. By good words and fair speeches, deceive the hearts of the simple. Hey, they may be popular among you. They may be the the most famous people in the congregation. They may be the slickest talking. They may have the most charisma and the most personality. But God says you need to deal with it. You need to mark them and you need to avoid them because they're not serving the Lord Jesus Christ. They only care about them and theirs. That's the immune system of the body of Christ. These are the principles that if we're going to be the right kind of church, we need to realize there's going to be problems. You can't avoid it. You can't stop the problems. But what God cares about is what are you doing to try to deal with them according to God's principles. In conclusion, if you look with me back in Acts chapter number 5, and notice that we read in verse number 14, Acts 5 verse 14, right after, right after somebody shows up to church and God drops them dead. Can you imagine that? I, I, I think about what happened, you know, word travels fast 
nowadays, doesn't it? I mean, this is a small community. Even before social media, word traveled fast around here. Now, now, don't you think for just a minute that if some spiritual phony this morning, I mean, came to the altar and said, oh, we're, we're, we're getting right with God, but they were faking it, and God's dropped a couple of them dead this morning, don't you think that that word would get around pretty quick? And I know what some people would be thinking. People would be thinking, oh, no, nobody's going to come to our church. And, I, you know, I think it's possible that next Sunday some of you might not be here. <laughs> I hope not, but... But the results here, look, it says, and believers were the more added to the Lord. Multitudes, both of men and women. Hey, God's work done God's way equals God's results. You know what? If you, if you're going to have a church, you don't want a church full of Ananias and Sapphira's. If you got that, you got a mess. And God knows that. Listen, it's not the quantity. It's not how many people. It's the kind of people. Hey, what would be wrong with spiritual pretenders? If you're fake or phony, I got news for you. There's not a whole lot of hope for you. You'll never get right until you get real. If there's anything, you have control over being real. You don't have to be fake or phony. And you may have your troubles and you may have your trials and you may have your failures. But by all means, be real about it. I don't mean going around just blabbing it to everybody, but at least if you're question, don't, don't try to pretend that you're something that you're not. So you'll never get it right. You'll never get God's grace until you just at least get real with Him. Say, God, I've been fake. I've been pretending. I've been trying to look good. And I need to quit being that way. And I need to start just trying to do good and do right. Famous preacher, number of years ago, said, everything rises and falls on leadership. I say question mark, question mark, question mark. That's not necessarily true. I mean, yeah, observation, pragmatically, you can say, yeah, a great leader can produce great results and a poor leader can, it can all fall. But we're talking about the results that are incurred by the leadership of a man, not the grace and power of God. How about this one? Let's keep the main thing the main thing. I've heard that one. The main thing is soul winning. I, I, I think soul winning is great. I think it's wonderful. But I say let's keep the main thing the main thing. The main thing is the Lord Jesus Christ. There's a whole lot more to the Christian life than just simply soul winning. Hey, you can win souls and you can gain numbers and you can have build a church through soul winning. But what happens is if the people think that outreach is the only thing that's important, then we start cutting a few corners just here and there, a little at a time, because after all, we're just trying to reach people for God. A church needs to be pure. A church needs to be healthy. A church needs to have convictions and standards. Yes, a church needs to try to reach people for Christ, but a church also needs to worship. The church is for the pleasure of the Lord Jesus Christ, and everything else ought to hinge upon Him. I'm not nitpicking and saying that these slogans or these phrases are false. I'm just simply saying we need to make sure that these slogans, these cliches, that they hinge on the whole Word of God. Revelation chapter number 2. Look with me if you would. Thank you for your patience this morning. I, I think it's obvious that this is something that my heart is extremely passionate about. I think that this is such a relevant topic that God's people need to get a hold of and needs to get a hold of us. 
Is there not a need in Statesville for the right kind of church? Is there not a lost world out there that doesn't even know what church and Christianity is supposed to be based on what they see in it? What good is our gospel message? What is it? What good is what we say if what we are doesn't match what we say? In Revelation chapter number two and verse number two, Jesus is getting ready to analyze seven churches and he says to the church of Ephesus, he's judging whether they're the right kind of church. He says, I know thy works and thy labor and thy patience and how thou canst not bear them which are evil. Thou hast tried them which say they are apostles and are not and hast found them liars and hast borne and hast patience and for my name's sake hast labored and hast not fainted. Let me tell you something. That's some good qualification. That's some good qualities of a church. Man, they're not putting up with nonsense. They're dealing with lies. They're de- they're, they are trying to be pure and right. But notice what the Lord says in verse number 4. He says, Nevertheless, I have somewhat against thee, because thou hast left thy first love. Hey, what's the main thing? What's everything supposed to rise and fall on? Not our human leadership. What's the main thing? The main thing is that we have in our heart a genuine love for the Lord Jesus Christ. If you love Him, you'll love what He loves. If you love Him, then you'll do what He wants you to do. You'll believe what He wants you to believe. Everything else will just fall in place if we remember that Jesus saved our worthless soul. He could have sent us to hell and He would have been good and just and kind because we deserve everything that we have coming to us. But instead, He chose to suffer and bleed and die on Calvary's cross and to pay the penalty for my sins and your sins. We should never ever get over the awe of the grace of God and His love for us. Hey, the right kind of church has Jesus Christ right there in the center. The seventh church that's listed here in Revelation is the church at Laodicea. And Jesus says, I stand at the door and knock. What's he doing outside of the church? He's knocking, trying to get back in. Hey, I'm thankful that we got the right book. I'm thankful that we got the right music. I'm thankful that we've got some good, faithful, solid people. I'm thankful that people tithe. I'm thankful for all of the service and all of the labor. These are all wonderful things. But if Jesus, if we crowd Him out and we don't make Him feel welcome in our midst, we're just going through the motions. And ultimately, we will fail. The right kind of church. I close with this statement. And I hope that you'll think about it. I hope that you'll look in the mirror and analyze your own heart. If you and I will be the right kind of Christians, we are certain to be the right kind of church. It's really not that complicated. We don't need a purpose-driven book. We don't need some kind of a formula or method or system. We don't need a new gadget. We just simply need to get on our knees and say, God, help me to be the right kind of Christian. If every single one of us will do it, it yet remains to be seen what a right kind of church can do in this community. Would you bow your heads and join me as we go to the Lord in prayer? Father, in Jesus' name we come before You. And we thank You, Lord, for this first church in Jerusalem. Lord, they were a right kind of church. Great grace, great power. They were unified with a purpose. They had boldness. Lord, they had everything that 
we need. I thank you, Lord, for the elements of this church that we have here at Temple. And I know, Lord, that we've got a lot of good things that are going for us. But I know, Lord, that there's still a lot that You want to accomplish. There's still more that needs to be done in our hearts, in our homes, and in our children. And I pray, God, that the Holy Spirit of God would help us here this morning. I pray that we'd not be mindful of anything else than just simply what the Holy Spirit is saying to us. there be anyone here this morning that is lost and without Christ, I pray that they'd be saved. there's anyone here that is saved but not living for You, not being the right kind of Christian, I pray, God, that they would get it right in their heart before they leave this place. Perhaps, Lord, there are some here that are saved, that are living right, but, Lord, are not fully serving being part of the church as You would have them to be. I pray that You would lead and guide them. May they follow Your will and Your timing. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Just remain seated, heads bowed and eyes closed. The pianist is going to continue to play. We're not going to sing an invitation song. We're just going to let the pianist play. I want you to privately prayerfully consider what God would have you to do.